everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. My name is Romina Silva and I'm a PhD student at the University um, College Dublin. And I'm joined today by Professor Donald Brennan, who's a gynecologist uh, in the Matter uh, Hospital, and uh, Declan Feeney. And we're going to be uh, talking today a little bit about um, a research paper that I published recently and all the story um, around everything that happened to come to that paper. Um, yeah, uh, Donald, do you want to get us started? Thanks, Romina. Thanks for, thanks for helping us do all this work. Um, as I said, my name is Donald Brown and I'm a, a gynae cancer doctor in the matter and um, I work in UCD as well. And I'm delighted to have Declan here uh, with us today. Um, so Declan, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, my name is Declan Feeney. I'm, um, um, professionally, I'm a lecturer in the um, Environmental Science Department of IT Sligo and lecturer in Sustainability and Environmental Science. But um, personally, I was the uh, husband of Orla Kenny, who was a uh, unfortunately passed away from cancer a number of years ago. And she was uh, very creative in her own right, but she was also the creative director for Kids Own and very proud of the work she did in the last number of years. So hopefully, I'm looking forward to have a nice conversation around um, her and what happened to her. Thanks, Declan. Um, and I'd like to thank you for, I suppose, the courage and, uh, you know, the forthright way that you approached this because um, sometimes those of us that work in research, uh, we often don't hear the human side of the story uh, that goes behind the research that we do. And maybe that's one of the privileges of being a, a clinician scientist that you get to work between the science and the clinic. And I think it's often within the clinic that people um, bring you back to earth. And uh, one of my recollections of Orla is that she was well able to bring me back to earth whenever I got um, uh, ahead of myself. Um, but Orla was an amazing lady and she had a huge impact on all of us who had the privilege to look after her. And, um, you know, I think she was very proud, as you say, of the work she had done in um, particularly childhood education. But I, I think she'd be quite proud of this work too. So what we might do is... Um, for start off by having a little chat about Orla's journey and maybe you can bring us back to the start deck and uh, when you guys came to meet me first. Well, I should tell you that she used to love to give you a little bit of hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, she also actually, um, from the point of when she was diagnosed, she felt very safe and um, very kind of comfortable in the hands of the team in the Matter Hospital. And, and to be honest, that was kind of one of the big rocks she had. But... Um, Orla was diagnosed in 2016, um, late to that, September, October in 2016. And looking back, she probably had um, symptoms for a period beforehand, but we didn't recognize them because um, the type of cancer she had, and Donald, you probably can fill that little uh, element in a bit more detail, wasn't very specific at the time. So there was, um, for us, a cascade of bad news is the best way I can describe it um, for a period of time. And she had treatment in the matter with um, uh, the team there, um, had surgery, came through surgery, um, made amazing recovery considering her condition at the time, um, had a number of rounds of chemotherapy in 2017 um, and had a very good year. Um, and late 2017, into early 2018, her symptoms reoccurred um, and eventually she succumbed to her symptoms July 2018. So it was nearly a two-year period. Um, and at that point, um, unfortunately, you know, we'd we'd tried a number of treatments, and we can talk about those. But um, we did get a period of time with her, and 
at the time, it wasn't very obvious to me um, how much time we would have. But in hindsight, I realized that we've actually had significant more time than we probably would have gotten in the past. And I think that's one of the great things about doing this podcast, because I think some of the things that we experienced were on the back of much research that happened in the past. So effectively, we have more time together. Um, but we maybe will come to a bit of that as well. But yeah, that, that's Orla's story. Um, and Orla passed away July 2018, so she's nearly four years past at this stage. So um, yeah. That's, Thanks, Declan. And that's, um, yes, uh, I suppose to put it in context from a, a medical perspective, and of course Orla gave us consent before she passed away to do the research, and she was always uh, very much in, interested in her um, in how we would publicise it. In fact, when we come on to the sequencing, I remember one of the things she wanted to do was come and interview me in the lab when we were doing the sequencing to see could she asked me some difficult questions. But um, Orla, as you said, had a, a form of ovarian cancer called low-grade serous ovarian cancer, which is a very rare form of ovarian cancer and makes up only about 1 in 20 ovarian cancers that we see, but does disproportionately affect younger women. Um, and uh, you're right, she had a... Um, probably had symptoms for a number of months or a year beforehand. And the problem is, as you know, more than anybody at this stage, that those symptoms are non-specific. They're things like abdominal bloating and fatigue and maybe feeling full before you finished your dinner. And they're all very non-specific symptoms. And unfortunately, because of that, um, women are diagnosed at a very advanced stage. Um, and in Orla's case, it was, it was probably it was stage four almost at that stage when she when she came to us. Uh, she was phenomenally courageous and resilient, uh, and she did an enormous operation, as you remember, where we we, we operated for eight or nine hours, removing different uh, parts of tumour from throughout her abdomen. Um, and she had a very prolonged recovery initially afterwards because of that, and uh, she got a bit frustrated with us from time to time. And I can only imagine if I was in that situation, I'd be much more frustrated. Um, but as part of that process. Um, we had samples from multiple different um, uh, areas that Orla had, had developed cancer in, including obviously her ovaries, uh, the peritoneum and the lining of her abdomen, um, some of her bowel. And also then later on, we were able to get some um, samples when she recurred, as you said, a year later, uh, from her chest and her lungs, because she came up and had an extra procedure done to seal off the fluid in her lungs. Uh, so these were hugely, um, I suppose, valuable piece, pieces of tissue for us from the perspective of trying to understand the disease. And she was always very interested in that. Um, and as a result of that generosity and her will to, um, I suppose, develop these ideas, we were able to do this work that we're going to talk about today. But before we get on to that, um, Declan, um, I think one of the things that we would like to touch on is maybe how you as a partner and as a family found it, uh, to how you navigated that area around the time of diagnosis and about finding out about information about a rare tumour like low grade serous cancer. And I'm sure that was a difficult journey. Um, you, when you find out, well, I think this has probably often been said, but it's, it's a fact that, you know, when you find out that there is a thing called cancer in, in you or your partner, um, you know, you, it just, it, it does quite 
leave you with an echo that it's very hard to comprehend what the words are afterwards. So you tend to not hear. And even if you, I found we went in with to you on a number of occasions and I had a pen and paper and I wrote down words. And when you get outside, the words don't tend to make sense when you written them down. And you'd have some information at the end. Um, but even after a consultation, which might be uh, anything 20 minutes, 40 minutes, depending on, on or longer or shorter, you know, you, you it didn't stick in your mind afterwards. And it was quite hard to actually be kind of specific about, you know, where you actually were at that point and have a conversation around it was, was also equally difficult. But, you know, inevitably what you'd end up doing is going to Google and searching for it or going onto the internet to some web browser. And that was not... Um, that's not a healthy place for I think for any of us to go because if you go for anything on the internet these days, you know you're you're profiled, you get more information back than you necessarily want, and also you find information that's not actually correct um, or factual to the case you're in, um, and it doesn't help you navigate where you are at that point. Um, and unfortunately, at the time when um, when Orla was diagnosed. We we did have some information on the internet, but unfortunately, when you do do a search, you find lots of other spurious information and gives you facts that are that didn't apply to Orla at all. Um, we found that there was, well, it was mainly me that was looking for the information. Really, didn't help us that much. Um, you you might get some very cold clinical information, but sometimes it was actually wrong. In other cases, you suddenly find yourself being targeted for information from advertisers afterwards that is inadvertent. But it can be quite um, quite upsetting, I suppose, at times. But um, the other thing that we we noticed is, well, I noticed afterwards is that a lot of that information is wrong because the science is constantly moving. So what you read on the internet maybe is not a year old; it could be five years old, it could be eight or ten years old. So it was difficult to actually be at the correct information at that point in time. Um, and actually, one of the, th- the conversations we had. Um, uh, afterwards was having a um, I remember actually having it with you and Orla was having a dedicated space somewhere for people to go and be able to get proper information and I'm delighted now that um, that has come through um, with your website yeah thanks and I think um, so the website that we've developed is called thisisgo.ie and it is that it's considered a safe place where people can get access to reliable and relevant information and it's personalized and that you can get it with relation to your own type of tumor in particular maybe the stage of the tumor but one of the things that was novel to me about that is the idea that I really hadn't obviously experienced of you know the profiling that goes on and how you then get sent push messages uh, which of course can be very um, traumatic and again it highlights the importance of talking to patients and their partners because as, as doctors we probably wouldn't notice that because those push notifications come to us all the time based on our search histories and things like that. So it always kind of highlights the importance of that. Um, Sorry, but the other thing I think you find is that you rush to the really bad news. Um, and there's not that's not necessarily the case for everyone. Every diagnosis, as you guys know, is different and, and every individual is different as well. So each case that you can't look at just the bad news. There's lots of other things that occur. And then in the process of someone becoming ill, um, lots of different stages occur, lots of different journeys, mini journeys within that larger journey occur. So, you know, the information on the internet is generally quite uh, specific, clinical, and quite cold. And, and it can actually more dumbfound somebody than actually leave them with a sense of hope and a sense of direction as to where they want to go. And I guess that's um, something that. Um Romina, you probably see too from the point of view of science that trying to understand 
that interaction between what happens in the science world and what happens in the clinical world can be quite difficult. And um, I'm sure as you come to the end of your PhD studies now, you know you know a lot more now than you did maybe three or four years ago. But have you found that? Have you found the same experience? Um, yes. So I, I've I've never worked. Uh, prior to the PhD, doing the PhD, I've never really worked in um, a clinical setting before. So a lot of what I learned throughout my PhD was completely new to me. It's 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 a balance between what research and uh, the clinical side can actually bring to the table. But I think that even more important than that, um, it was an experience that I had about three years ago. It's it's the 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 managing of the expectation of the patient from what actually comes from the clinical side and from the research side. I was presenting my work, um, which I will talk about a little bit more in a few minutes, uh, in a a conference where patients were allowed to actually come into the the conference. Um, And uh, a lady came to me saying that her friend had ovarian cancer and I explained to her a little bit about my work. And uh, she instantly loved the idea of what I was doing. And she was like, oh, I need to tell about my friend, my friend about this, because she then can talk about it to her doctor and her doctor can find something like this for her because they are not finding anything. And I, I, I remember that at the time I felt a little bit trapped because you don't want to discourage people because the research we are doing is really important and will help patients. But at the point that my research is, it's still very initial. So there still needs to be a lot of validation and more time to perfect the results before it actually becomes um, something that can be used in the clinical setting. So it, it's complicated to, to manage the expectations of the patients to try and make them understand that research is really important and that it is important for us as researchers and clinicians to have patients involved in research, but also that the research that we do isn't unfortunately going to be available for them tomorrow. So I think I think that also what people find on the internet when they Google, just like you said, Declan, it also doesn't help at all um, in, in this matter. Um, well, I think what we found, and I was really conscious of it after um, Orla had her operation, is that um, from talking to the team in the matter that this was something new. This was a whole series of, of activities that they'd only recently started to do. And then Donald, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so our our kind of our crossroads at that point were, you know, there's the, the opportunity to have this quite major surgery or we don't. And that's quite fatalistic. So obviously you take the major surgery, but that major surgery is presented to us because of the back of research that's occurred and work that's been occurred in medical facilities in Ireland and around the world. And it's now available to us. Um, and post-surgery and as Orla progressed on um, the opportunity to actually take on other advanced new novel medicines appealed to us a lot. Um, we were never reticent about the idea of research um, and, and Orla was very keen for it because I think she she saw the, the value of it. Um, but I think I see the value of it now in hindsight in that I had significantly longer with her and she had significantly longer with me and, and her son um, so instead of having possibly three, four months as a result of the work that occurred many years in the past, maybe a decade in the past up to now, we had nearly two full years and it's time that you can't buy, you know, so it's, it's really, really valuable. But we, we did um, agree to also 
take part in use of a trial drug. And um, at the time, to us, we weren't very certain if it really made a lot of difference. But kind of on the back of having the experience of surgery that had only come to Ireland in more recent times, we felt that anything that could help beyond us and help others in the future, then that was surely worthwhile. Yeah, to put that in context, um, back in 2018, I come back from um, Australia, maybe a year or so beforehand, or I'd come back into the Madrid this year beforehand, and we just started that aggressive surgery program, which is now very well established. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, as you say, Declan, that sort of surgery was being offered around the world for many years, um, maybe, maybe a decade, um, but really hadn't got to Ireland, but is now available in Ireland. Um, uh, and it is very important, as you say, at least in, uh, we believe, prolonging people's lives, but unfortunately in ovarian cancer, whether it's a low-grade or a high-grade tumour, it will rarely cure people. And that's actually an important thing that we're moving towards is explaining to people that they will be living with this chronic disease, ovarian cancer, and that could be for two years, like Orla, or it could be for five or six years in other cases, depending on you know different people. So uh, that was a starting point. But just to move on to the research, what I might just do is kind of summarise very quickly what happened to Orla. Um, as you said, she presented and had surgery, um, very extensive surgery, and um, she had chemotherapy for six cycles. Um, and then she started on uh, tamoxifen, um, which was an anti-estrogen drug, uh, which we know has some effect on these low-grade serous ovarian cancers. And one of the problems with low-grade serous ovarian cancers is that it's not particularly responsive to chemotherapy like some of the other ovarian cancers. But we had a long discussion. I remember having a very in-depth discussion with both of you about the fact that if we didn't try chemotherapy, or at least give you some chemotherapy, if some trial came along in the future, she may not be a candidate for it, which she really annoyed her. But she, um, it, we, we spent a lot of time discussing the fact that chemotherapy remained the standard of care, even though it was not very effective. Um, and that was a, that's always a challenging um, conversation to have with patients who I always feel if they don't challenge you about that, they're not, they probably haven't heard what you're saying and you need to go back and explain that to them. And, uh, but unfortunately, as you said, she, she developed a recurrence. Um, she developed some fluid around her lung as far as I can remember. And she, uh, we uh, brought her back up here and we drained that and uh, we took some biopsies and then we put her on to, we put her onto an experimental drug, but we, we use the experimental drug really based on the research that we've done and, um, what I might do is ask Romina to maybe summarise what happened from a, a lab perspective uh, in Orla's case. Um, so in Orla's case, like Donal said, uh, we had uh, taken um, several uh, samples from her tumours, not only the primary tumour, the ovary, but also um, some metastatic sites um, that uh, had tumour cells as well. So the first thing that we did was sequence all of those um, all of those sites. And what we understood from looking at the results was that Orla's tumour actually had a very specific mutation in a pathway um, that is um, very common in low-grade serous ovarian cancer, actually. And um, not only was it present in uh, the primary tumour, but it was also present in the metastatic sites. Now, that mutation is very important because uh, 
Now there are a, a couple of therapies that can actually target very specific mutations, um, unlike chemotherapy, which will end up affecting all of the cells. So this would be a more specific approach towards the tumor uh, that might give some or less some more time. So one of the things that I work with um, and that I could explore a little bit more in this um, in this case was this concept surrounding uh, liquid biopsies. And just give an overview of what liquid biopsies are. Um, so I think everyone knows that we have DNA inside of our cells. That's what makes up our being and our cells. Uh, but that DNA can actually be released into um, our blood, whether because the cells are dying or because they're shedding the DNA. So that happens in every single person. However, that also happens in people that have cancer. And in the case of cancer is that some of the tumors, just like Corliss, have very specific mutations that won't be found in any other cell. So that makes the concept of liquid biopsies, which is basically to take a sample of blood and try to follow that specific mutation in the blood through a period of time, it makes it a lot more specific to try and monitor a patient than, for example, by doing a CT scan or any other blood test that might not be as specific for the tumor. So what we did then in the lab was to try and design um, a specific test for this mutation uh, so we could try we could try and understand if we could detect it in Orla's blood, and we actually could. So what this means for the future is that if we were able to find these specific mutations in women that have ovarian cancer, then maybe we could try and come up with an assay that would allow us to monitor these women in real time and maybe pick up a recurrence a lot faster than we are doing at the moment. Now, this is not something that is validated for the clinic as of yet, although there are a few tests that are now being used in the clinic in other cancer types, such as lung cancer. But I think this is definitely a step in the right direction to try and make the care of ovarian cancer patients more personalized and more accurate. Um, and we were able to do all of this because Orla and Declan gave us the permission to use our samples. So we're, we're very grateful for that. Well, Orla was very excited about the idea of the liquid assay um, because she, well, we, we talked about it at length, but the idea of having to wonder, you know, do you feel well or do you not feel well? Is there something changing? And, and is, it, is it something physically changing or is it just, you know, are you having a bad day or if you've got to go for a scan? And there's all these other methods that we use to determine if you're getting better or not getting better but the idea that you can have an assay carried out and you get a hard scientific piece of information to know where you are that was very very exciting for us because it it removes all those gray areas and it's a bit like uh, finding information on the internet again it's instead of going off and trying to search through web pages you have somewhere specific to go and you get some concrete information and that's that was one of the great things about this um Plus, it means that, you know, you can, at that point, get treatment if you need it. Or if you don't need it, you know that it's, maybe there's something else that you need to look at. Maybe it's just you're having a bad day, but it takes the, the grayness away by, being, having that, by having that clear information around an assay. Thanks, Declan. Yeah, and the interesting thing here was, and our, I remember when, this, when we got the results back from the sequencing, the, the, the mutation was in a gene called BRAF, which is a very commonly mutated gene in a, 
in cancer across multiple different cancer types, as Romina said, melanoma, uh, colon cancer. And it is often mutated in low-grade serous ovarian cancer. But the actual mutation itself was an unusual mutation. Um, so the change in the DNA was not the common one that we see in um, melanoma in particular. Um, so the, I guess we were a little bit, uh, we were very hopeful at the start, but we were a little bit worried then that if we did try to target that pathway with an experimental drug, we were never like, when we were never hugely sure as to whether Orla would respond to it or not. Um, but we sat down with, with you and Orla and we had a chat and her cancer was progressing. Um, at the time in Ireland, there were no trials open for low-grade serious ovarian cancer. And this is, a, this is a problem because for these rarer tumours, it's very hard to open clinical trials um, in small countries because there's huge investment and infrastructure required to open clinical trials. And if the rare for rare tumors in particular, if you don't have a large population, they're very hard to, um, to accrue to. And so what we did was we sat down with Orla and yourself and the medical oncologists, and we, we discussed the option of trying an experimental drug off trial, which is called a MEK inhibitor. And uh, the MEK inhibitor, it was a tablet, as you remember, and it was called Tramotinib. And it was, it was actually on study at the time in a large trial in uh, the US. And we had, I think we'd even written to the guys in the US to see what they consider Orla for a clinical trial, but they felt she was too sick to go at the time or she wouldn't be able to travel. So um, after discussion with both of you, we made a decision to start um, this drug, Trametinib, based on the fact that we felt that it would target the BRAF pathway and would um, uh, potentially slow things down for Orla. But we, you know, I think we were all very clear that this was everything we were doing was in some way palliative, although, as you said before, Declan, uh, Orla was kind of adamant that she was going to keep, uh, keep on living. Um, but that was the reason to start around the experimental drug. And do you remember the conversations we had around that? Uh, it was quite interesting because, again, it comes down to Romina's idea about balancing up expectations about how you actually um, explain these things to people. You, well, we, we were in a position that um, we knew that our options weren't many. There were, there were a few choices, but none were that good. Um, and having something coming in that was an experimental drug while it may not give us clear outline to where we would be in the future, it was worth giving it a shot at that stage. Um, and it was quite clear to us that, you know, we were in a pretty tight spot and she was, her, her uh, case was progressing. So it was worth trying just to see if, if it would work. And I think, you know, we did talk around the whole idea that it's an experimental drug and if anything came out of it, that's great. It's, it's nice that there's some information that may be passed on to somebody else at some point. Um, but it was worth trying, I think, at that point. And I think for us, you know, that I think in some ways you you live in a slightly different bubble that you're, you assume that you, there will be something to try and maybe to work for you till, you know, and cure this. But the other side is somewhere deep down, you do know that, you know, you'll try some drug that as long as you know that there's a track record or can actually help somebody else in the future, that there's a, there is an opportunity for this to improve as time goes on, maybe beyond the, the life for in this case. Um, and I think we were kind of keen to give it a go. 
ideally, as you know, we would like to have an infrastructure where we would be able to offer these clinical trials to every patient um, in world situation. And I hope as time goes on, that's what will happen because the best way to study these drugs is within a clinical trial setting where um, you know you can you can really measure the effect of those drugs um, to try and really understand what's working and what's not working and then plan future studies as they do in some of the large international academic centers. But I think Ireland is starting to get there. We just we're a little bit behind the the behind the game in that that area, but I think we're getting there. Um, but I suppose last, the other thing we wanted to talk about Declan was, you know, it's we always feel in medicine that well, we tell people research is very important, but that's like um, you know, turkeys voting for Christmas because we do all the we do the research. So we're kind of uh we're we need to tell people that we need to we need to a believe our own propaganda and b we kind of have to tell people that we're very important as well but um you know from a patient perspective as a scientist as well as a person with a scientific background like how did you feel about how do you how did you feel personally about being asked to participate in research and kind of how did you think that that was a burden to you or did you feel that it was a good thing or did you kind of think well it might do something for somebody else, but it's not going to do a whole lot for us at the moment. Because I think sometimes the, we listen to what institutions tell us about research and the government tells us about research, but it's not very common that we hear the patient's voice about you know, the benefits of participating in research. I think the, obviously, there's, I've a research background myself in a completely different area. Um, and you realise that you know, everything that you're doing is probably built on some work that's carried out in the past. And there's a process or a procedure that you follow within the area of environmental science to do some form of a test. And that's been worked out and it makes sense. And when you're involved in research, you you know that you're generating data and the data may go somewhere and it might prove or disprove something or it might help something work better in the future. Um but in discussions where suddenly you're involved in research, it sort of changes the perspective. What you what you want, I think, is the um, the smoothest path, especially when you've got your partners ill. That there's no queries or questions or unknowns. And the one conversation we did have around the whole area of research was: Would it stop Orla having as good a treatment as she could possibly get because? We were following a path that maybe was had some unknowns in it. And, and I, I don't think we felt that. I think the fact that the, the team in the matter and yourselves you know, explained what was going to happen, how the area of gathering data through the biopsies um, from some of the tumours and the use of the experimental drugs at a later date, all that information was presented to us in a way that you know was, was clear and factual. And that was that was helpful because you don't want to find that you know the the research path you took actually didn't help as much as you, you know, and as maybe a normal path. And I think that the way that the the research was presented to, to us is that Orla would get the best treatment as possible, but this was an addition. And that was actually very, very beneficial to us. And we realized that, you know, there was really no loss for us in this situation. We could continue to travel the path that was well trodden, if you can, if I can use that expression. And yet anything we get from this was going to help prolong Orla's life at the time. And that information was made really clear to us at the time at least to us we heard it and that was very very useful um but it, it is slightly nerve-wracking when you explain to somebody else that's not necessarily connected and particularly i'm thinking of people that were around us um 
that may not have been in all the conversations and you have to explain a little bit more of the research to them. And that can be a little bit of a challenge because they obviously want the best, but people assume just if it's involved in some form of a, a new trial that there may be a wonder there. And we knew that there might be, but there might not be. And you have to try and explain that principle to others as well. So that can be a little bit more of a, a challenge and explain to others around you where you are. But I think overall it was, it's worth trying, especially when we knew where we were with um, Orla's diagnosis. And how did you find it then when we got back to you a number of years later? And it just shows you how slowly things, you know, Romina worked hard in this project, but we ran into all sorts of issues with COVID and technical issues and machines breaking and things like that. But how did you feel at a personal level? And how did you communicate with your family and maybe Orla's family when, you know, because we, we had talked, obviously, and I said, if we do write this up, I will send it to you beforehand to make sure that you... You, you know, you're happy with what's in it. And I did send you a paper that yep. in a kind of a cold scientific way uh, demonstrated that huge emotional journey that you've been on. Um, yeah, and again, here I am, someone who's involved in research elsewhere and I've read scientific papers, but when you read a scientific paper that's actually very personal and you have a very personal side to it, it actually is quite a challenge. Um, and maybe I'm... I won't say I'm unique, but maybe that's a semi-unique situation. Um, but the other side of it is that Orla's case has been documented in a clinical manner, which means that it's factual, it's correct. Um, it, it's, it speaks about what happened, how things occurred. Um, it also um, had some uh, amazing um, uh, slides in images in the paper as well. And I think actually that was the thing that I latched onto. I think Orla would have loved them because she did really like working with microscopic um, work in her own personal art. And I think she would have loved to have seen those. Um, and I was really sorry that she didn't get that opportunity, but I, I think that um, she would be really proud of the fact that, you know, her, her own uh, tissue samples were present in a scientific paper and it was being published. Um, in explaining it to, to, particularly to my family and to Torla's family, um, I think they all were appreciative of the fact that, you know, if, if this was going to be part of a larger piece of research and it was going to possibly be used in other studies and maybe those other studies would open new doors to new technologies, new assays, new um, diagnosis, then they were very, very happy for it. Um, but I think for most of us that are involved in sort of the, the, the normal world and not in the world of um, medicine and research, um, some of these things are a little bit impenetrable. There's there's words that are um, designed for, for medical fraternities, if I can use that. Um, but I think that actually gives it a, a, um, a clarity as well so that there's there's no disputing the, the information. It's very, very clear, even if it is in terminology, it's purely in a medical sense. Yeah, that's one of my bugbears, the terminology, actually. We need to work on that because uh, I think we're, we're prone then to use that terminology when we talk to patients, which is um, really not helpful, but uh, that's, a, that's a whole other podcast. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, obviously, um, the quality of the figures in the paper have nothing to do with me and are completely down to Romina um, and all her hard work. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is nice to kind of make that link between an artist and the fact that they're the things that you pick up on uh, uh, because, you know, it is important that her voice is heard and, you know, we get this uh, this right. I think this is a unique situation. I'm not sure there are many podcasts where a patient's uh, 
family and loved ones have attended, have gone back and talked the story through after it's published. Um, and, it, you know, as I said, it takes huge courage to do so. Um, Romina, how did you find the whole process? Um, I, I, it was definitely a, a new experience for me. Uh, one that I was very happy to be involved in because I, uh, it, I think that ever since I started my PhD and I started um, talking more to patients about what uh, I've been doing, um, I've realized that it is important for us to do this because patients are putting sometimes their lives on the line um, and they're also helping us to move forward with the research and the clinical side of the disease. So it's very important in my my um, uh, point of view to give back. Um, so I was very, very um, involved in this project and I'm glad I did because it's definitely a different perspective from just being in the lab every day um, loading DNA into plates um, because it, it it comes sometimes on a daily basis in the lab. It can be so distant from uh, what the people actually go through in the hospital and when they get a cancer diagnosis. So it was definitely a special experience for me as well. Great. The paper is called... Uh, sorry, Declan, did you want to say something? No, I was going to say that, um, well, Oral, of course, um, as well as being involved in publishing children's books in the organization Kids Own. She was an artist in her own, own right. So during her entire um, period of our illness, she did an awful lot of work reflecting on um, her time in hospital and her time recuperating. And um, I think she used to actually found it very helpful for her um, to understand some of the science and some of the imagery behind um, a lot of what was going on. So um, I, I think she was she was keen at one point to get into the lab, actually, and would have looked to have met you, Romina, to, to actually look down the, the microscope and see what you were seeing. Um, and it was actually, she. I think she challenged Donald at one stage to go, when am I going to get a chance to go in? I want to take <laughs> photos of it. Um, so I am delighted that the, some of the images actually made it into the, the scientific paper. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we're lucky enough to have um, a 13-year-old. And um, I know that when science is published in a journal, um, they're given, you know, a title and there's a reference and it, it sits, but it also does travel and it, it has a it has a life that's well beyond um, the actual diagnosis and the, the patient's file. So I, I kind of see it as, as being part of Orla's legacy that, you know, that she has got a place within um, research. I don't know if she'd quite appreciate that. I think she'd appreciate the images more than the reference. But... I, I think that's one of the nice things. And I think to pass it on to, you know, who, whatever happens in the future, it's it's quite nice. So I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, it, it's quite a nice thing. And so I would actually like to thank you guys for, for that and for the imagery that are in the, the paper as well. well. Thanks, Declan. The paper is called, as usual, using too much medical language, investigating a clinically actionable BRAF mutation for monitoring low-grade serious ovarian cancer case report. And it's published by Romina Silva in case reports on women's health in February 2022. Um, I suppose uh, there's a few people I want to thank. I want to thank Romina for all her hard work uh, with her PhD, which she's writing up at the moment. And throughout her PhD, she has won numerous um, awards uh, for communication. And as you can see from even today, she is, has an amazing gift for communication science. Um, I'd like to thank the people who fund the work, the Irish Cancer Society and also the Irish Association of Cancer Research who have funded part of this work. Um, uh, but I suppose 
most importantly, I want to thank Orla. I knew Declan. Um, yeah, she did want to interview me, and I think I got the um, the easy end of the wedge there by being kind of semi-interviewed by you because it would have been a lot tougher. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> today. oh, yeah. Um, it was poor Orla. And, um, you know, uh, I suppose part of my job is to highlight how, you know, we are improving care for ovarian cancer patients in Ireland through a combination of increased and improved clinical work, but also obviously through the development of uh, research. And, you know, since Orla's disease and passing, I can tell you there are a lot more people in Ireland working on ovarian cancer research than there were in 2018. So, you know, maybe that will be my legacy in years to come, that we'll have more people working, more more people a lot brighter than me working in the area who will um, make much better, much more progress. So... Uh, listen, thanks so much for joining us and it's been a pleasure to meet up with you again and I'm glad you liked the paper. It wouldn't have been very good if you came on here and weren't too happy with the paper. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right, thanks everybody. Thanks very much. Thanks guys. Thank you.